Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica White and Claudia Walner, who are both researchers at the Terrorism and Conflict Research Group at the Royal United Services Institute. And they're here with us today to talk with us about the role of gender and policymaking, especially in regards to the far right. Jessica and Claudia, thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us, Augusta. Hello, thank you for having us. So, Jess and Claudia, I wanted to start off with a big framing question. We usually do that on Right Rising to kind of set the stage for where we'll be going throughout the episode. So, let's start with what does it mean to include gender in policy? I'll jump in on this one, I guess. Uh, sort of, it, it's a challenging question. It's a very uh, a diverse, I think, answer to that question. Often, I think when people think of gender in policy, they think of women uh, and making sure that we're including women in, in security policy. Um, but ultimately, sort of the argument that I'm constantly making to people is that it is about more than just women. We need to think about gender analysis in that we are assessing everyone's, you know, sort of socially defined gender roles. So what does it mean to be a woman in a society or what does it mean to be a man and how does that impact, uh, you know, security solutions and security policy and uh, sort of actions that are taken um, for, for security uh, reasons? And I think you know, there's multiple elements to that, uh, everything from from gathering, you know, sex disaggregated uh, data to record sort of the gender of those who might be participating in your program or being, you know, impacted by your policy, uh, to conducting sort of a more in-depth gendered analysis and research and understanding um, the context, you know, where you might be implementing that policy and how those gendered roles might be different and, and impacting people's uh, agency differently and why they get involved um, and security, um, pro, you know, programming or solutions. Uh, so I think, it, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a, it can be a very big answer to that question, uh, but essentially it, it impacts everyone and sort of every individual's impact, um, participation in security. Well, just, I love the way that you frame this at the beginning, right? That it's not just about women and the way that I think our, our minds really go when we hear gender and policy is let's talk about women or women's issues, but it's really the way that the concept of gender and, and the way that our different gender roles in society are having this impact in policy. It's not just about women. So as our listeners know, I'm right rising. I am a historian. So I will ask you a little bit of a historical question. How has gender in security policy been approached in the past? I think, you know, I think that's sort of the answer to this question is largely why we first think of women, uh, you know, and when we think of gender, because I, you know, historically, if you look back sort of 20 years ago was the beginning of the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And that sort of was, you know, initiated with the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 uh, in 2000. And that sort of cemented international commitment, at least at a very, you know, high policy level to the idea that it was essential to include women uh, when you're thinking about sort of the impact of security policy as well as meaningful peace and security solutions. Uh, and I think I've, it was sort of unfortunate now looking back, I think in the last sort of five, maybe 10 years, there's been quite a, a progression within the, you know, the people who, who research this area and even policymakers in this area to think that we really need to think about it more as gender peace and security rather than women peace and security. Um, because I think it was sort of that initial step into the, the women peace and security realm that really focused policy in this area on women. Um, you know, there, there has been some success, certainly related to the women peace and security agenda. 
Uh, we've seen, you know, an increase of, of female participation in, in peacekeeping missions and sort of more attention, perhaps, to the impacts that that security um, policies or security, you know, measures have on women and sort of in, you know, insecure situations. But largely, I think, you know, it, it's fallen short in a lot of ways and sort of, and it hasn't encouraged uh, meaningful adaptations, I think, of policy, rather sort of some, yeah, some more progress. There's more progress to be made, certainly, to improving approaches. Well, it's really helpful to have that context. Also, you know, of just kind of reifying again that this overemphasis just on women's roles is really masking this broad spectrum of when we're thinking about gender and policy, what are the kinds of questions that we should be asking? And all of us here come from academic backgrounds. So I'd like to just shift our focus a little bit and ask, what are the academic conversations contributing to these discussions about gender in policy? I think, you know, certainly there is a much more robust, um, you know, academic field uh, studying sort of feminist security, you know, and sort of applying that feminist perspective to security policy, critical terrorism studies, critical security studies. They're all sort of taking on board a, a more diverse approach to security and thinking about it. But historically, it's a very patriarchal system, uh, sort of, you know, especially in Western conceptions of of security policy, it's a very male-dominated environment. Uh, and because of sort of perhaps a, a misstep in the approach of focusing so much on women and it unintentionally perhaps links the women's rights agenda and sort of gender equality agenda to security policy and programming, especially in the context of the global war on terror, which sort of you know began at the same time in the same time, you know, frame, that it it, it has damaged, I think, in some ways sort of, you know, securitized uh, women's rights and, and gender equality uh, in a way that can be damaging. So there's certainly a very robust academic conversation about um, the negative aspects that perhaps do come along with, um, you know, the linking of women to peace and security solutions. There has been this sense of, uh, you know, gender policy simply adding, I'm going to say the phrase, add women and stir. And this was sort of a phrase that was developed when you're thinking about, um not rethinking the policy as it exists and perhaps you know rethinking what assumptions that policy might make about the roles of women or the agency of women and these things, but simply saying, okay, in order to improve our gender equality representation, we'll add in five more women, make sure they sit at this table, you know, make sure that they're involved in the process without really thinking, rethinking the, the reasoning behind that policy or the implications of that policy. So you might end up with more women at the peace table, for example, but do they actually have a voice? Can they actually contribute to that conversation? That's a whole uh, different issue. And certainly, as we've been saying, you know, Augusta, there's certainly a need to to take an on board of a fuller consideration of what gender means, uh, not just to look at women, but to look at the role of masculinities and femininities and sort of these social conceptions of gender roles. Yeah, just to add to that, um, so one of the key areas of, of our research and um, both the academic debate, but also programming that we've um, we've looked at at RUSI um, is um, really the area of, of youth. Um, so kind of in the context of, of extremism, terrorism. So debates in this area um, are kind of mainly based on the premise that um, the youth that are actually at risk of radicalization are mostly males. Um, so programming that focuses on youth tends to refer mainly to males, um, whereas gender, so Jess has already mentioned this, but um, 
debates about gender tend to um, tend to focus um, mainly on females with kind of no distinction of age at all. Um, so that obviously leads to an overwhelming focus of, um, of interventions and also academic debates um, around youth empowerment um, on really young males um, with just very little regard for um, for for females in this group. Um, and I think this area and this this understanding really um, kind of needs to be um, changed to to really remove gender bias um, in this area. I think it's also really important to um, to acknowledge there's not a single concept of um, what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, um, but there's really multiple models of, of masculinities and femininities that need, need to be considered. Um, so firstly, obviously, there's geographical differences, um, global north versus global south, um, and um, you know many distinctions um, in those spaces. Um, there's also kind of class differences there uh, in those regions. Um, and um, also, I think, um, especially if you look at the far right, um, I think there are real differences in the gender roles and gender identities and what is accepted um, and what is not in, in different subcultures and communities on the far right. So, for example, in some movements on the far right, um, people who identify as LGBTQ plus um, are very much accepted and sometimes even take on leadership roles, um, whereas in other groups and movements um, on the spectrum, um, you know, they're, they're incredibly homophobic and transphobic um, and they would never um, accept somebody like that um, in their groups. Um, and also just uh, another, another quick point I think um, really needs to be considered in this context is the different roles um, and identities that women take on um, in, in the far right and kind of in, in groups and movements on the far right. Um, so everything ranging from um, the model of the trad wife, so very traditional understanding of um, the role of a woman as a mother and a wife, uh, first and foremost, to women really taking on more action-oriented roles um, or the roles of ideologues, etc. So there's a whole spectrum of, uh, of issues to consider um, when we talk about gender in this context. That's incredible, helpful context, Claudia, especially you know, when we're talking about this, the spectrum of how issues of gender seem to manifest in the far right. If we're talking about sort of violent, toxic masculinity, if maybe we're thinking about incels, if we're thinking about maybe trad wives, or if we're thinking about the roles that women will play in far right movements, that especially in the academic spaces, and we've had lots of people on the podcast talking about the role of gender, but there seems to be a little bit, at least from my experience, a disconnect between how academics have been talking about the role of gender, particularly in far-right extremism, and what that actually looks like in the policy spaces when we're developing solutions to what we would call PCV, preventing and countering violent extremism. So I wanted to ask you both, how has the shift in far-right extremism and this renewed emphasis on this as a security issue in the security conversation really opened up more awareness about the role that gender plays in these kinds of extremist spaces? I think if I can come in on this one, I think that sort of there's a perspective that exists, uh, you know, especially I think in the generalist audience that far right and Islamist extremism are are opposing each other, right? One feeds off the other, that they're totally different ends of an extremist spectrum that, you know, that uh, perhaps hate each other. But really, when you think about it, they are opposite sides of the same coin. They're both at the far right conservative end of a spectrum of, of, of you know, political, religious, you know, ideological belief. And I think sort of so there are some less that can be taken perhaps 
from what we have learned from 20 years of, you know, sort of CT and PCDE focused, you know, security policy in the Islamist context and the global war on terror and sort of this extreme focus on that ideological threat. Uh, we've learned a lot about, you know, sort of mistakes were made and assumptions about the roles that women can play, about their agency. Do they have agency? You know, should they be prosecuted as, you know, violent or as terrorists? And sort of a lot of these lessons perhaps can be taken on to be part of the consideration as we think about uh, far-right extremism and as especially Western security organizations, you know, shift their attention more so to the issue of far-right extremism. I think you know, there definitely are parallels to be drawn uh, from the participation of women and sort of the roles they were allowed in Islamist organizations versus far-right organizations, um, you know, and sort of how the misogynist narratives that are behind, you know, to take on the role of, of motherhood, uh, whether that is to, to raise the next generation in the caliphate or whether it is to raise the next white generation, sort of there's very similar narratives and sort of, you know, and that go in behind um, the roles that women are allowed in these organizations. And I think you can definitely see women in some cases in both, you know, both ideological contexts trying to push the, the, the roles that they are allowed to take into more action-oriented roles. Uh, and sort of, I think, you know, with that, you can look at the different types of far-right extremism, you know, lending sort of different allowances of agency uh, to women. It's such an umbrella term that pulls in a lot of different <laughs> levels of misogyny in the, in the different types of, of far-right extremism. I don't know, Claudia, if you wanted to add to that. Um, yeah, no, just on, on the point of, of misogyny, um, I think one thing that's, um, that's often highlighted in this context is obviously, Augusta, you already mentioned this, the emergence of incel-related violence, um, kind of on the radar of, of extremism and terrorism. Um, so for example, in the UK, um, it's kind of re-emerged on the radar with the, the Plymouth, um, mass shooting, um, not too long ago where the shooter was, um, apparently involved with, uh, with certain incel subcultures online. Um, but really, I think it's just important to keep in mind that um, that all far ideologies, and as Jess mentioned, um, also other um, extremist ideologies, are really gendered. Um, but if you talk about the the far in specific, I think um, one of the ger- uh, gendered narratives that is um, incredibly popular on the on the far right is the narrative around um, victimhood of the white race. Um, so this is obviously rooted in. Um, even the idea of the of the emasculation of um, of white males, both by uh, undeserving immigrants um, uh, and and outgroups they don't um, you know agree with, and also by empowered women who are kind of thought to limit the the economic opportunities and also the historical supremacy of of white males, um, both in society but also in the in the context of the of the family. Um, and um, I guess changes in society, like uh, increasing multiculturalism and the emancipation of uh, of women, are sort of portrayed in these narratives as um, having led to kind of a war um, against uh, heterosexual white men um, who feel they're suppressed by the, uh, the the continually changing social norms and the increasing uh, progressive. Um, norms that that they feel are um, changing the the game for them, um, and then in contrast, if you look at um, concepts of femininity, um, the far traditionally portrays um, portrays women as pure and as weak um, and in need of protection, 
um, by, you know, real, real men, real white men. And, um, and they believe that the, with, this is also something that the Jess already mentioned that kind of the main, main role of, um, of women in society is really to, to ensure the, the survival of the nation, um, by bringing, uh, white children into the world, um, and raising them. I think you know, there's a, a point to bring back to the, the policy question. I think that you know, there's a really a difficult um, element here for for our police, uh, you know, and for our intelligence agencies as the CT frameworks and sort of the you know the counter extremism concept has been developed so securely in the sense of Islamist threat being the most prominent threat that they almost don't know how to qualify violence that maybe is related to extremist ideology that might fall under the far right. But incel is a, is a new idea in a sense to them of, you know, can you, can you label a murder or a beating or, you know, sort of these small scale levels of violence as terrorism? Should you label it as terrorism or should it be labeled as murder? And sort of this issue of, of different ideologies feeding into that different ideologies that are perhaps less well understood by security services who have had such a focus on Islamist extremism that there isn't a system in place uh, yet, or they're just now developing a system of sort of a policy being able to reach these other and include these other types of ideological extremism. And certainly, you know, there's a challenge, I think, within the legal system as well, sort of legal definitions of terrorism uh, or or acts of violent extremism. and, And does that include an understanding of something like incel violence or, you know, something uh, that is not traditional, you know, to what's been developed over the last 20 years. I wanted to go back to something that Claudia mentioned a couple minutes earlier about that there's so many different forms of what masculinity and femininity look like even within the far right, right? If you're in the global north context, if you're in the global south, what far-right extremism looks like in India is not the same as what it looks like in the U.S. There are similarities, but they're not having the exact same conversations around gender roles that you may see in the U.K. So I wanted to ask you both perhaps a slightly unfair question, but since you all are in the policy space, how has gender been included in these conversations about preventing violent extremism, combating forward extremism, and how should it be included, especially if we're taking into account that these are not the same conversations in every space where far-right violence is really starting to become a serious security consideration. So I think, you know, in the history of, of preventing and countering violent extremism, which has existed for just over 15 years now, sort of in the context, in the, you know, the modern sense of what, what it means to, to have a PCVE policy, uh, you know, it originally began with sort of a sense that women should be included in their roles as mothers and as, uh, you know, people who are closely connected to their community, people who are inherently more peaceful and could therefore bring sort of that that sense of, of peace building to community conversations. And perhaps, you know, as mothers, they should have an inherent understanding of their child's you know, radicalization process, whether they are being radicalized. Uh, and I think, you know, sort of looking back on that now, the academic conversation certainly has become more critical of that assumption. You know, the assumption, we shouldn't assume these sort of generalized stereotypes about women that they are more peaceful because they do have agency in, in, in violent roles in these organizations. Uh, and certainly, you know, I think a conversation about the support roles that women play, while they may not be obvious and sort of, you know, taking up arms and, and committing that frontline violence, they are certainly playing those support roles to violent extremist organizations and not recognizing 
their agency in doing that is sort of damaging to how you include women in preventing and countering violent extremism. Because if you're you know, making assumptions about how they are involved, then you're you know, making sort of the, the mirror assumptions about how to use them in the fight against violent extremism. So I think certainly historically, you know, there's, there's a need now we see to include more examination of the roles that men take, you know, and the versus the roles that women take uh, and how they are the same and perhaps the same, some of the same reasons why they get involved or why they take up certain roles. There's a need to, you know, include more research in each context where you're implementing this type of program. And this comes to your global question, right, Augusta, that sort of it is different in these places, you know, and you can't really have one policy or one program and expect it to work the same when you're implementing transnational preventing and countering violent extremism. And then when you need to implement it in your domestic space, um, certainly, you know, there are different um, challenges that come with implementing PCBE programming in a domestic space with the majority population versus a minority that you're um, sort of concerned about being linked to uh, an extremist idea. As often was the case, you know, we saw with sort of the Muslim communities being targeted with PCBE, you know, against Islamist extremism. So there are certainly different challenges, you know, that present with, with far-right um extremism and sort of counter-extremism programming. And the same sort of challenges I was sort of referring to earlier with the legal systems and the CT frameworks aren't set up very well to sort of consider a wider array of ideologies. And and while far-right extremism is certainly on the radar right now, uh, you know, the extremist threat spectrum is always evolving, you know, so I think it needs to be more flexible um, in, in considering how to include women but also how to include this wider gender analysis and perspective in prevention programming and sort of, you know, the, the immediate even security actions, military actions that are taken to secure an area and in the de-radicalization programming that needs to occur and rehabilitation and reintegration programming. I mean, all of these different elements need to be considered um, and sort of the implications of, of wider gender analysis on them. Thanks for that, Jess. It's really it's really helpful to think about not just this transnational, there's this huge emphasis, right, on creating global counterterrorism policy that there is a sense in it, and it is justified, right, that these movements are interconnected, that they're pulling from one another, that they are connecting in ways that have this international scope and an international reach in ways that we haven't seen before. But it is important to retain the reality that these are still in some ways very domestically focused organizations, that they have a domestic agenda, that they have, that they're infused with the particular gender ideas and roles that are coming from the societies in which they're based. So I wanted to ask, because we've we've kind of touched on this a little bit, that a lot of the PCV programming is really rooted in a countering Islamist extremism past. And now we're shifting the focus to really focus on far-right extremism. So what are the implications for PCV programming overall now that we're aiming it to focus on the far right? Um, so I think one thing, and, and Jess already slightly touched on this earlier, but um, one of the issues is that... Um, you know, with, with programming aimed at, aimed at the far right, um, we're talking about, um, you know, directing programming um, at majority populations um, in, in Western cultures, um, uh, Western countries, as opposed to, um, you know, directing it at, um, uh, at minority populations. Um, so obviously there are different types of, um, of gender stereotypes that you're working with, um, with uh, these, these different populations. 
Um, and in another point, I think this is linked to something I've mentioned earlier on um, the, the, the focus on um, young males, especially in the context of youth. Um, so obviously interventions um, predominantly focus on, um, on men, especially uh, in the context of youth, but um, at the same time, male-specific gender issues are often really not addressed in, in PCB interventions. Just mentioned earlier that there's, um, you know, focus on including women and, you know, looking at the different roles of women. But um, again, when you look at men, um, these gendered um, issues that might be driving them toward um, violent extremism, including the narratives around victimhood that I um, that I mentioned earlier, um, are really not addressed very well. Um, so I think in order for for interventions to really address the full spectrum um, of driving factors toward violent extremism. Um, gender-specific issues, um, both of men and of women, um, really, really need to be um, included. So this is, you know, includes um, issues like um, emasculation, humiliation, um, delayed adulthood, uh, failed adulthood, and some, um, and in some cultures where you need to achieve certain things to really be considered um, an adult. Um, so there, there are many issues there, but I think. What's just really important to to consider in all PCB programming is that you really need to address the factors that you know drive people into extremism in the first place. So obviously, for some people, that would be ideology, um, and I think for those people, it makes a lot of sense to address the ideological components um, to you know try to get them out or to you know prevent them getting further into it. Um, but you know, as we've seen in, in our research, um, and as I think a lot of people are, are coming to terms with now, um, gender and gendered narratives really are also playing um, a massive role for many people in, um, in their pathways uh, toward violent extremism, terrorism. So I think, um, especially for those people, you just need to address those issues. Obviously, they won't be relevant for every single person, um, but they just need to be part of, of the wider debate. I might just add something here. I think, you know, one of the unique things about this transition now and thinking about changing, you know, or adjusting PCE to be more fit for far-right extremism is that I think if you look to the academic conversation about far-right extremism, its focus has largely been on masculinities, which that was not the case with Islamist extremism. So Islamist extremism really approached gender and looking at women's roles and how, you know, how they could engage women in, in PCVE agendas. But it's kind of flipped on its head with Bari extremism and that masculinity has been the focus of this and sort of the toxic masculinity that goes with these very, you know, chauvinist organizations. But I think it's important to realize, you know, sort of that it, it is, it needs to be a full picture. And I think this is what I always bang my drum on about sort of gender applies to everyone and sort of even the ultra nationalists and xenophobic, you know, sort of the ones that you wouldn't think of as misogynist per se, there are tones of misogyny running in the narratives of, of those ideologies and those organizations as well. And sort of the implications that that makes or that that leaves for how women engage with these organizations and in some cases support them, you know, contribute to them, um, recruit for them, you know, all these different roles that, that women take and why they take them. I think these are all elements of this sort of wider gender analysis that I certainly we are advocating for. And I think if I think about, you know, to the wider policy question that it really does go all the way to the top, right? So because security has been such a, you know, historically masculine dominated 
policy arena and research arena even, we, we need more women involved in more diversity of all, of all kinds, not just gender, but you know, more gender diversity certainly in people who are policymakers in this arena and who are researchers, you know, it, and sort of to get that perspective from the very top of people who are thinking about, you know, appropriate policies and solutions, um, it needs to start there. Otherwise, it's never going to filter down to sort of on the ground implementation of, uh, you know, more gender awareness in programming and, and in, you know, policy implementation. Well, I think that is a fantastic note and call to action to end on. So Claudia and Jess, I want to thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast. And I wanted to ask for our listeners who maybe wanted to learn more about this, where can they find more of this work? Where can they find the kinds of reports that are coming out of RUSI? Where can they connect with you? Where can our listeners learn more? Yeah, so um, the RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, we have a, a website up and we have, you know, a range of, of projects that we're looking at relating to sort of CT and PCBE. We have a, a very specific far-right extremism and terrorism program that is sort of, we've sort of set that up over the last year. We're excited about it. Um, so, so there are project pages up, so please do come have a look at and um, sort of look at what we've produced so far. Uh, we also have a, a terrorism and conflict um, Twitter handle, which I'll leave to Claudia to tell you what it is. Uh, that's uh, Rusi underscore terrorism. So it should be, should be easy to find. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, can, we can do that. We will we'll press the follow, like and subscribe. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Augusta. Thank you for having us. This has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.